ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Monday, January the 22nd. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. The federal government appears to be preparing to release a new package to deal with the stubbornly high cost of living. Labor MPs have been recalled to Canberra for a party room meeting on Wednesday as the government tries to show voters it's tackling one of their top concerns. Oliver Gordon reports. As the Albanese government canvasses new measures to cut the cost of living, Melbourne resident Paul's got a few ideas. They should reduce regulations, cut taxes and stop government spending, reduce government spending, that's the best way. Juggling a toddler, fellow Melbourneian Aaron just wants action. I feel like they just need to listen to what people want, to be honest. They don't really seem to be doing too much at the moment. And you're a person with a, what appears to be a young family. Where would you like support from the federal government right now with regard to cost of living? Definitely with the weekly grocery shopping. Uh, that's quite expensive, especially with you. You eat quite a lot, don't you? <laughs> so yeah, I think that that's, would go a long way for us. Aaron's partner, Amanda, says the family is struggling to keep up. Interest rates, just everything. So help anywhere would be greatly appreciated. Power bills and petrol prices are top priorities too. Where we live, we have to drive a lot, so a tank doesn't go very far. So that would definitely help too. Federal Labor MPs have been called back to Canberra nearly two weeks early to discuss ways to ease cost of living pressures on households and businesses. Treasury has been asked to provide advice on ways to do that without adding to inflation, although it's not clear exactly what measures will be discussed at the Wednesday caucus meeting. The CEO of the Australian Council of Social Service, Cassandra Goldie, is hoping any new measures target low-income earners. Our latest survey confirmed that about 90% of people on income support are in housing stress and about three quarters are skipping meals. So the cost of living crisis is very serious. And she's repeated her call for Labor to scrap the planned Stage 3 tax cuts, which will mean everyone earning between $45,000 and $200,000 will pay 30% tax. If you're going to spend about $20 billion per year, there are much better ways that that you should be targeting that expenditure um, than delivering $9,000 extra uh, assistance to people on $200,000 and more. The federal government could consider another round of energy bill relief, something Cassandra Goldie would welcome if it's targeted towards those most in need. We need to um, help people who've accumulated large energy debts behind them, um, completely unable to pay them off. They're going without food and other essentials because they're trying to pay off those energy debts and those needs to be cleared. It's not just households looking for relief. Luke Arkdestrat is the CEO of the Council of Small Business Organisations. 43% of small businesses in Australia are not actually breaking even. Certainly would be encouraging governments to look at um, some energy relief, potentially look at reducing the fuel excise as well. And he has a few other ideas. Looking at the insurance um, sector as well, um, obviously promoting better competition. We welcome the government's commitment to have a look at the grocery um, industry, for example, but there are other things the Commonwealth can start doing, perhaps you know, starting a conversation with various states and territories about payroll tax. You know, Payroll tax is really inconsistent between different jurisdictions in Australia and it's a tax on jobs. And he says the time to act is now. We can't waste any time here. We need quick, effective and fast policies that reduce the cost of doing business, particularly for small business, in what's going to be one of the most challenging years on record for small businesses in Australia. 
Luke Arkdestrak from the Council of Small Business Organisations, Oliver Gordon reporting there. One of the biggest contributors to the high cost of living has been high energy prices. In an effort to tackle that, the federal government struck deals with two of the nation's largest gas exporters to shore up domestic supplies for the East Coast. Political reporter Nicole Hegarty is at Parliament House. Nicole, tell us a little more about these new deals. Well, the aim here, Sabra, is to shore up domestic gas supplies and lower bills as a result. Woodside and Esso will supply 260 petajoules of gas or enough to power the East Coast's gas-fired power stations for two and a half years to the domestic market between now and 2033 under this deal. The Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen says that it will also help to shore up energy reliability, pointing to concerns uh, raised by the Australian Energy Market Operator, or AEMO, and the ACCC, which have both previously warned of potential gas shortages in the years to come as demand overtakes supply. So these detail, these deals also mean that the companies uh, will be exempt from $12 a gigajoule price caps uh, for the domestic market, and the ACCC can take action if they fall short of these new domestic gas supply undertakings. And Nicole, this isn't the first time the government struck these agreements. What's it trying to do? Well, that's right. The first agreements were struck with Senex and Australia Pacific LNG in November of last year, uh, an agreement to direct 300 petajoules to the domestic market over the coming six years. So not the first step here, but again, the government is trying to shore up supply because of domestic demand outstripping supply as gas Uh, shortages come into play here in coming years, particularly on the East Coast. There's concern that we could see some seasonal shortfalls. So the government in striking these deals is working to avoid that in doing so with increasing supply domestically, also hoping to put pressure on prices to limit them uh, rather than seeing bills continue to grow. Nicole Hegarty there. Queensland's on alert again for a second cyclone in as many months. A tropical low in the Coral Sea is likely to become a cyclone tomorrow, possibly crossing the coast between Cairns and Mackay by midweek. As Stephanie Smale reports, with some communities still recovering from Cyclone Jasper last month, residents are worried. It's only been a month since the deluge delivered in Cyclone Jasper's wake forced Katie Martin, her partner and their two children onto their roof. They were rescued by helicopter from their flooded Mount Molloy home northwest of Cairns and are now living in a caravan on a friend's property. Katie Martin says she's watching the path of the next potential cyclone carefully. Yeah, we're bracing for everything really because cyclones are just so unpredictable. You just got to be prepared for everything and just taking one day at a time at the moment because we're sort of just living on survival mode at the moment still. She's got insurance and repairs are underway on their home, but she's still worried more severe weather could hamper the recovery. You've got the, the high, higher winds on the top of the hill, but then you've got the risk of flooding when you're in the valleys and, you know, down by the creeks and the rivers. So, yeah, it's just a question of waiting and seeing and gauging it. We're watching the predictions carefully, but we also know that there's no certainty. So at any minute, you know, the predictions can change. So, yeah, we're definitely bracing for that. And we, I mean, we're prepared for more damage. About 350 kilometres south, locals in Townsville are on standby too. Lisa Marie Sampson owns and operates a sailing charter business there and she's got boats in and out of the water to take care of. 
So we'll probably have to get some big cement blocks and tie the boat down to the slipway. But then we've also got two yachts in Breakwater Marina. One of those boats is her home and she'll be sheltering in it. And if it looks like it's going to be a Category 3, our larger out of those two, our home, we will go up to Hinchinbrook Island and we'll just stay on board. It's what we always do. People think we're crazy, but in Cyclone Yarsi, seven to ten boats went up into the channel and they actually all survived. So being in the the mangroves is it's a safe place to be. The message from local councils between Cairns and Mackay is plan and prepare, but don't panic. Julie Hall is the mayor of the Whitsunday Shire Council. Most people in the Whitsundays, they've been through many cyclones before. It's not new to them. They know, they know what to expect. However, there are some new residents uh, to the region. So I ask that, you know, if they do have a neighbour that is new to the region or they do have a neighbour that's an elderly neighbour, that to just uh, check in on them. And, you know, we're keeping a very close eye on what's going on and, and listening to the experts and we'll take their advice. And if we need to uh, activate the Disaster Management Coordinator Centre, we will do so. The tropical low is expected to intensify over the next day, with modelling showing it's likely to cross the coast midweek. Stephanie Smale reporting there. The Federal Emergency Minister, Emergency Management Minister Murray Watts says authorities are closely watching the tropical low. Yeah, this is obviously a very serious system that is developing off the Queensland coast and it's a little early to know at this stage exactly where it would be likely to hit landfall. Um, But, you know, we would obviously be concerned if there was to be any further impact on those areas that were already hit by tropical cyclone Jasper and that are very much still in recovery mode. Uh, But really, if we're talking about a Category 3 system, that could have pretty serious effects wherever it crosses landfall. Emergency Management Minister Murray Watts speaking there on RN Breakfast. The disgraced former New South Wales police detective Roger Rogerson has died. He was 83. Roger Rogerson built a tough guy reputation and consorted with criminals during his time in the New South Wales police force until he was eventually expelled and then later jailed. The time of his death, he was serving a sentence for murder. Penny Timms prepared this report. Were you involved with this murder? Will you be defending the charges, Roger Rogerson? On the advice of my lawyer, I'm saying nothing at this point of time. He was a tough cop who rose through the ranks, only to have a very public fall from grace. Roger Caleb Rogerson started life in the Sydney suburb of Bankstown, joining the police cadets as a teenager. He excelled at a time when organised crime and police corruption flourished in New South Wales. Rogerson was awarded for his policing, rising to the rank of detective. But he was also feared. In 1981, Rogerson made the front pages when he shot dead a young drug dealer, Warren Lanfranchi, in a Sydney laneway. At the time, the victim's girlfriend, Sally Ann Huckstep, claimed he'd been murdered in cold blood. Rogerson countered the shooting was in self-defence. Ms Hugstep made repeated claims of police corruption. She was found murdered in a Centennial Park pond in 1986. Later, Rogerson was charged over the 1984 shooting of Sydney Drug Squad officer Michael Drury, who survived the attempt on his life. Drury claimed Rogerson had unsuccessfully previously tried to bribe him to change his evidence in a drug trafficking trial. Rogerson was eventually acquitted. 
The once untouchable detective sergeant was dismissed from the police force in 1986 for misconduct. In the 1990s, he spent nearly four years in jail for perverting the course of justice. We've got your girlfriend. You might have to charge her if you can't assist us with our inquiry. Rogerson's notoriety grew when he was portrayed as a crooked cop by Richard Roxburgh in the 1995 miniseries Blue Murder. A series so legally fraught it couldn't be shown in New South Wales until five years later. Rogerson tried to use his infamy to his advantage, putting on a stage show with another notorious criminal, Mark Chopper-Reed. By the mid-2000s, Rogerson was back in jail, this time for lying to the Police Integrity Commission. His final undoing came in 2016, when he was found guilty of the murder of Sydney man Jamie Gow during a drug deal two years earlier. CCTV showed three men going into a storage unit, but only two walking out. Rogerson died under guard in Sydney's Prince of Wales Hospital. He was 83. Penny Timms reporting there. When there was an energy supply crisis on the East Coast a year and a half ago and gas prices rocketed, Western Australia's gas reservation policy was the envy of the nation. Gas producers with fields offshore have to supply a fixed amount to the domestic market and all of the gas from onshore fields has to be sold locally. But the WA government is considering softening this policy, raising concerns that prices might rise sharply. Here's energy reporter Daniel Mercer. At a site south of Perth in the city's industrial heartland, Grant Lukey shows off manufacturing equipment worth many millions of dollars. Uh, so the plant in here is our titanium powder process. He's the managing director of Coogee Chemicals, a private industrial company with operations across Australia. Many are run at least partly on gas. Gas is critical to, to Coogee Chemicals, but more importantly, it's important to state, right? For almost two decades, Coogee has benefited from WA's domestic gas reservation policy, which includes a requirement for onshore gas producers to supply all their gas to the domestic market, while the projects in offshore waters have to set aside 15%. Compared with the eastern states, prices have been stable and relatively low. But that's changing, with prices rising and forecasts of supply shortages from 2026. Grant Lukey worries there'll soon be parallels with the East Coast. I am from the, uh, the East Coast myself, but we had, we had a methanol plant that was operating in the East Coast when the LNG facilities were being established and built there. That methanol plant is now closed down, it's in care and maintenance mode, as a direct result of uh, the failure of the natural gas policy on the East Coast. And now some producers want the ban on exports from onshore fields to be overturned. The export ban was put in place by then-Premier Mark McGowan in 2020, with one exception, a project in WA's Midwest operated by Japan's Mitsui and Beach Energy, a company backed by media mogul Kerry Stokes. Others are now demanding similar treatment, including Perth miner Chris Ellison. At his company Mineral Resources' annual general meeting in November, he said he wanted a five-year exemption from the ban for his Lockyer project north of Perth. We've had some good talks with the government and I'd like to think that we're going to get approval to be able to export for the first five years when it, when it comes online. WA Premier Roger Cook says he's considering changes to the ban. I think we need to be realistic. If we are looking at a scenario where we have 100% of zero uh, supply of gas, well then that's not a great outcome for us any, either. Steve Thomas is WA's Shadow Energy Minister and he's urging the government to tread carefully. I think there's a solution that may allow some export of onshore gas when the marketplace can absorb that. 
The issue is that you don't want open slather. It is critically important that we support the domestic gas users, those industries that are employing Western Australians. Major gas user Grant Lukey from Coogee Chemicals says the WA government is about to make a mistake. I think West Australia is at a crossroads. So our concern, any contemplation or any thought of changing the Dom gas policy here for onshore gas will likely result in what we experience on the east coast. And that's a disaster. Roger Cook has indicated he'll make up his mind about any changes by mid-year. Daniel Mercer reporting. Year after flooding swamped dozens of homes in the outback New South Wales town of Menendee, some residents are frustrated with the results of a review into the disaster. Reporter Bill Ormond explains. When homeowner Paul Gross takes a look at his outdoor entertaining area, all he sees are reminders of the flood. You have a look in here. That was a $7,000 kitchen we just done in here. It's totally destroyed this and I'm not fixing it. The 76-year-old has moved back into his house at Menindi near Broken Hill in far western New South Wales. But there's still a lot of cleaning up to be done after the Darling River breached its banks a year ago. We were notified that we are going to have a bit of a flood. But we weren't notified to that extent. Well, I wasn't anyway. As it came to the shock to me, it was four o'clock in the morning and the grandson got out to go to the toilet and he yelled out, Pop, we're in a metre of water. The water rose after state-owned corporation Water New South Wales decided to release large volumes of water from the Menindee Lakes, which supplies farmers and residents living along the Darling River. Water New South Wales has since reviewed how it handled those releases, which were designed to mitigate more widespread flooding. The General Manager of Water Planning and Delivery is Ashley Webb. We got a lot of wonderful feedback from various members of the community who we know are well connected to the river and to the lakes and to the, the Darling Barker itself. The review found Water New South Wales worked well with other agencies like the Bureau of Meteorology and the SES during the flood. The review showed that Water New South Wales has appropriate and quite robust systems and procedures and policies in place to be able to operate its storages like Menindee Lakes during flood operations. Menindee resident Graham McCrabb disagrees. We had people that didn't realise there was water rising or coming through town until it actually arrived in the house. The notification was terrible. There's plenty of time to prepare for this and to be trying to cover up the failings of multiple agencies through this review is beyond disappointing. He says at public meetings in early 2022, residents were raising concerns about how to deal with any large influx of water into the lakes. The community were trying to have meetings and raise the issue of airspace in the lakes through May, June, July and they just didn't happen. And some of the situations we have now or had through January 23 would have been avoided had uh, any sort of notice been taken. The only thing that gets it off spray and white, you've got to rub it. You can't pressure clean it, it won't come off. But... While his home isn't the same, Menindee resident Paul Gross is hoping there won't be a repeat of the flooding. There's not a lot going to help us now, but I think I could speak for the community that we'd like to see that something that don't happen again, they improve on it. Whatever they've done, whatever they've done was wrong and I think there's room for improvement on managing the water. Menindee resident Paul Gross, ending that report by Bill Orman. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane.